We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And Mark <laughs> introduces Jesus in chapter 1 without fanfare, without pedigree. He just shows up in the desert. And he shows up with John the Baptist, who is himself just an interesting character, kind of reminiscent of a mountain man. And yet, people are drawn to him. And he has a message, and people hear it, and they respond. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and as he comes up out of the water, the heavens are torn open. The barrier between heaven and earth is disrupted as God enters in. And the voice of God says, this is my son, who I love, and I'm well pleased. Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, into Jesus, like a dove, and he's driven into the desert to be tempted by Satan. John the Baptist is handed over, foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus later on in Mark when he's handed over. And then Jesus begins to preach. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. Jesus then goes and he calls two sets of brothers, fishermen, to come and follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And they immediately give up a complete physical representation or illustration of what it means to repent, leave your old way of life, and follow me. And so they do. They leave everything. They come and they follow. And so Jesus and his followers, they go to the synagogue and, they, and he preaches and teaches with authority that amazes the people. He drives a demon out and the people are so amazed. The, uh, the news about him spreads like wildfire. And then he goes to Simon or to Peter and, and Andrew's house and heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And the whole town bring sick and people who are demon-possessed to Jesus to heal and to cast out demons. As the town wakes up the next morning looking for Jesus, he's hidden himself in a solitary place. He's with his heavenly Father, where he is refreshed and he prepares. And when the, temp when the disciples come with the temptation to capitalize on this growing fame, he leaves. He says, we got to go and, and spread this news to the surrounding villages. He stays true to his divine calling, even when tempted not to. <clears throat> An outcast, a leper, someone that's shunned for his uncleanliness, a symbol of sin, comes to Jesus, takes a huge risk in, in coming forward to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't condemn him as the religious leaders would have. He reaches out and touches him in his unclean state and makes him clean. And he tells the man not to tell people about him, but the man can't help it. And the news about Jesus spreads like wildfire. And he's restricted to lonely places outside of the city, yet people still come to him. In spite of all his efforts to stay under the radar, his fame is growing. His popularity continues. Wouldn't you want to see this man who's not a mere man? Well, his popularity comes at a cost. There's a story in Leadership Magazine about a man who lived in a forested area and found his house overrun with mice. 
And so he, there was too many mice to, to catch with, with the traps, so he went and bought uh, rat poison and mouse and rat poison. And he set it all up, including under his bed. Now, I don't know how he found his house this way. He must have been away, came back, and I would have gone away again until they're all dead. But he was in his bed, and he said it was like a frenzy of, of feeding. As the, under his bed, he heard all these mice eating this. this. This was just a popular place to be, all this poison. And they were just feeding like crazy. In the morning, he checked the box, and it was completely empty, so he put another one out for the next night. And again, they were drawn to this tasty snack like piranha, and yet this popular snack under his bed did its deadly work. In the, in the days that followed, all was quiet. Just because something is popular doesn't mean it's good for you. It can be deadly. And Jesus, growing popularity is not necessarily good for him. It's, there's, you get a glimpse of the dangerous opposition that he's having with the religious leaders. Even last week, as we looked at the story, where Jesus saw in their hearts that they were condemning him as blaspheming. Blaspheming is a cause for death. And it will be what Jesus, what convicts him in chapter 14. Four men are carried... To, to the, four men carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus past the, the crowd that's blocking their path and they're ready to do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. They dig a hole in the roof, they lower him down and Jesus doesn't, doesn't heal his ailment that he came with. He forgave his sin. And the teachers of the law, they knew this was akin to him claiming to be on equal footing with God. Because only God forgives sins. The, the religious leaders were convinced that they knew what the scriptures say, that they knew how it was supposed to happen, that Jesus couldn't be more than a man, that he was blaspheming. They didn't realize or understand or weren't open to the fact that he was the Son of Man, fully human and fully God. And Jesus proved he had the power. To say that because he then said, take, get up your, take up your mat and walk. And he gets up in front of everybody and he goes away. So we see this clash between Jesus and the religious leaders. And today, in today's passage and the next week's passage, it's going to get even more. They're going to be clashing with him even more as, as Jesus' popularity and fame is growing. His opposition with the religious leaders is also growing. Well, in today's passage, Jesus, he seems to like walking beside the lake, the Sea of Galilee, because verse 13 opens with saying, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And we get an indication, another indication of his growing fame as crowds gather around him. And I kind of think of Jesus as like a tour guide. You know how a tour guide kind of walks through wherever they're showing you, teaching as they go what's going on? Jesus, he just enters in, people join him, and he walks along and he teaches. God with us. He enters in. Well, as they walk along, he sees Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, a tax collector was a Jewish person who was, uh, who's bought the rights from Rome to collect taxes in their territory. They would collect tolls, duty, and custom taxes at intersecting trade routes. The Roman tax system, like probably most, uh, was complex. 
But a tax collector like Levi, he, would make, he could make a lot of money because he could overcharge and keep the difference. This was a very lucrative business. However, tax collectors were known for their dishonesty. They were considered traitors who would extort people already financially strained. So someone like Levi was offensive. He was despised and hated because he was considered a thief. Jewish tax collectors disgraced their families. They were not allowed to be a witness in court, and they were even expelled from the synagogue. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Jesus and the leper, and we saw how abandoned, alone, and shunned people with leprosy would be because they were a symbol of sin. Physically damaged, religiously unclean, socially excluded, completely unclean, alone, and avoided. It's hard to imagine someone being more shunned, more disgraced than a leper. Well, a tax collector comes pretty close. They were physical reminders of all that was wrong with the Roman system. These unjust, unclean, Gentile Romans. And because they chose their condition, because these Jewish tax collectors chose to be in this situation, they could have been even more offensive than the, than the leper. So Jesus is walking along, he's teaching the crowds, and he sees Levi, and he knows all that's going through the minds of his followers as they look at this tax collector. Everybody around would be seeing him and, and, and offended by him. And just like he did with the leper, when he reached in, he calls Levi, come, follow me. Can you imagine how controversial this would be to the people following Jesus? And just think about what the religious leaders would be thinking as they, as they watch him invite a tax collector to follow. This was completely scandalous. And yet, if you think about it, Jesus is showing that he's not looking for people who can prove how good they are. He's not looking for people of the elite, for the people that, that have it all together or think they do. He's looking for people who are ready to leave their sin and their guilt and their shame behind and follow him into a new way of life. Now, We've already seen Peter and Andrew, James and John do that. They, they left everything to follow him. They were physical uh, examples of what it means to repent and believe. But they were fishermen. And fishermen, if, if it didn't work out with Jesus, they probably could have gone back to fishing. Levi, when he abandoned his post, he would not be able to go back. So he was, again, a very visible demonstration of what it meant, meant to leave Repent, leave everything, follow Jesus, because when he abandoned his post, he was making a complete break with his old way of life and believing that Jesus was the better way. Can you imagine how hard this would have been for Levi? Not only is he giving up a lucrative business, but he's joining a crowd that's following Jesus that's probably looking at him with the evil eye might be backing away as he draws near. 
Following Jesus is not just a change in the way we think. It's a complete commitment. It's taking a risk to a complete commitment. And Levi took that risk. He left everything and he followed. And Jesus, he doesn't explain himself. He doesn't hesitate. He just, he just goes with Levi to a feast at his house. And I wonder if his disciples are beginning to have a deeper more compassionate understanding because they're with him. What would they be thinking as they follow Jesus into this tax collector's house with his tax collecting friends? Would they be giving them the evil eye? Would they be standing back? We don't know. It doesn't say. What we do know is that Jesus' disciples, tax collectors, and sinners are feasting together. This is a feast. This is an intimate moment of fellowship as people eat together. Well, verse 16 says the teachers and the Pharisees are seeing this. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Who is this Jesus who claims to be equal with God? And then he, he goes and he hangs out with, with unrighteous, undeserving people. Does he even know all the ceremonial laws that he's breaking? Does he even realize what he's doing? So they ask, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And as soon as Jesus hears this question, he's ready with an answer. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but, the, but sinners. In this statement, Jesus is not only explaining what he's doing, he's also, he's also expanding his understanding of who he is, the people's understanding of who he is and what he's about, his purpose, and he's forcing the religious leaders to face their own hypocrisy. When do you go to a doctor? When you recognize that you need more than your own understanding of what's going on in your body. When you recognize your own inability to care for yourself. There's a humbleness that comes with accepting a doctor's concern and care. And a doctor goes to the sick. He doesn't tell them, get better and then I'll see you. <laughs> he goes when they're sick, right? He goes to them in their need. Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. Jesus proved this in the story right before this when he said to the man, your sins are forgiven, and then backed it up by saying, get up, take your mat, and, and he does. He proves that he has authority to back up his words. And he goes to sinners. He goes where they're at. He goes to those who need them. He doesn't tell them, stop sinning before I see you. Get yourself together before I come. He goes in the condition they're in. He loves and accepts people and he goes and he doesn't just proclaim their sinfulness he doesn't just call them sinners or or judge them the way the religious leaders of the day do he loves them he accepts them and then when people respond they're responding out of love and acceptance not in order to gain love and acceptance the irony in Jesus's statement is that there's nobody righteous except him. 
And so the religious leaders are claiming to be righteous, but they're not righteous. They can't even see God in front of them. So Jesus isn't saying that they don't need him. He's saying that those who are willing to accept their need of him, those who are humble, recognize their sinfulness, those are the ones that he's come to, to help, to give forgiveness to. Are we more like the religious leaders of the day who think that we have it all together and pat ourselves on the back? Or are we like those who humbly admit we need help and we respond to the love of Jesus with grateful acceptance? Are we more like the religious leaders who proclaim people unclean, who give them labels and judge them and shun them? Or are we like Jesus who enters in wherever people are at and shows love and acceptance of their humanness, of their bearing God's image because they're human and invite Jesus people to follow. Well, I think you can see the growing controversy, the opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders already. Well, fasting is the next thing that people notice that Jesus is not doing right. They ask Jesus why, or they ask, yeah, they ask him why his disciples are, are, aren't fasting, like the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are, which is indicating that they're not doing things right that Jesus is not doing it right. However, in the Old Testament, there's only one time where people are commanded to fast, and that's the Day of Atonement. There are other times when fasting is appropriate, but the practice of the day had been that we fast at these times. It was a way of religious commitment, and the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And since Jesus was becoming such a prominent leader, his disciples should be fasting too. Well, Jesus, nothing phases him. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't attack back. He just blows their minds again with another analogy that expands the limits of who he is, the categories that they're trying to constrain him with. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah portrayed as a bridegroom. God, God himself is described as the husband and lover of the people of Israel. And a celebration, this was a week-long feast, a week-long celebration of a wedding, bridegroom and bride together. And so when Jesus asks if there would be fasting when the bridegroom is there, the obvious answer would be no way. This is a time to celebrate, a time to eat together and, and drink together and enjoy. Grief and mourning were times for fasting, and Jesus hints at his coming trial, suffering, death, when he says that he will be taken away, and that will be a time for, for fasting. But right now, he's here. This is a time for celebration. Think about how profound that statement is, that he's the bridegroom. Not even the Messiah in the Old Testament is portrayed as a bridegroom. By saying he was a bridegroom, again, Jesus is putting himself on par with God. 
Who do you say Jesus is? It's the question that Mark wants us to wrestle with. Who do you say he is? Jesus is clear about who he is. Who do you say Jesus is? From the time Jesus made his appearance in the wilderness, he's been surprising people by what he does, uh, his miracles, his healing, his authority, his power, and his claims about who he is. Last week, we saw him claim to be able to do something only God can do, to forgive sins, and he proves it by backing up his words. And he uses the, the title Son of Man, which indicates that he's fully human, fully God. This morning, we've seen him act completely different than the religious leaders of the day who judge people and condemn people, put labels on and, and, and condemn them. Jesus did the opposite. He entered in. He accepted and loved people as they were. He invited anybody who was willing. And he associated righteousness with himself, not with trying to earn it or prove it. He claimed to be the bridegroom. An analogy only ever used by God himself. So in verses 21 to 22, he explains that the categories that people were wanting to him to fill were not gonna be enough. They weren't gonna work. I don't know a whole lot about sewing, but I do know that if you buy a pair of jeans and you throw them in the washer and the dryer, they fit a little tighter. And you wear them for a while, they loosen up, then you throw them in the washer and the dryer and they fit a little tighter, but eventually they, they kind of don't shrink as much as they used to. So if you get a hole in the knee and you put a, put a patch on it, a patch that's never been washed or, or, or dried, and you sew it together and you throw it in the washer, that patch is gonna shrink more than the rest and it's gonna pull and make the jeans worse than they were before. Similar analogy with the wineskins. You put wine in a wineskin and it's supposed to stretch as the wine ferments, gases come and it stretches. Well, a wineskin can only stretch so far, so if you use up that wine and put new wine in to ferment and grow, it'll stretch and the bag won't be able to stretch anymore, it'll burst. Jesus is saying that he's that new wine. He's that new patch. He can't be contained by the religious categories that people are trying to constrain him with. They're trying to understand him with these, these limits they're putting on him as his authority is the very authority of God. Yet he always does the will of the Father. He gives himself as a servant to the people and yet he's not enslaved by what, he ens- what enslaves people. I love how one commentator explains these verses. Listen to this. The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two parables is not whether disciples will like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. The question is not whether we will make room for Jesus in our lives. The question is whether we will let Jesus completely change our lives and reorient them towards him. Who do you say Jesus is?
Every time we come to Jesus, every time we come to the word, there's an invitation for us to respond. This morning, each one of us has an invitation to respond. And I don't know what the invitation to you is. The Holy Spirit works differently for all of us, brings different things to each of us. He meets us exactly where we are, and we're all in different places. Maybe, for some of us, it's admitting that we've been like religious leaders who thought they had life all figured out. And we need to admit we're wrong. Maybe that means admitting for the first time that you, like everyone else, are full of sin and guilt and shame because we all are. And, may, and you can't do anything about it. You can't be good enough. You can't prove that you're good enough. You can't earn it. Jesus says you don't have to be under that burden or that pressure to prove yourself, to be good enough because he's the doctor and he wants to come in and forgive you right where you're at. No matter what you've done, what's been done to you, where you've been, he will forgive you. He will take away your guilt and your sin and your shame because he's the doctor, the ultimate doctor. He just wants you to be willing, like Levi, unlike the religious leaders. And he will lead you in a life of purpose and meaning and joy. Yes, hardship. Yes, struggle. But isn't life always struggle and hardship? With him, he walks with you. He comforts and strengthens and gives you meaning and purpose. Maybe the invitation for you this morning is to admit that you've been like the religious leaders in labeling other people, in condemning other people, judging other people, even shunning them. Not necessarily just how you speak to them, but how you speak about people in a different place than you are, with different type of thinking than you think. Jesus came to heal the sick, came to heal all of us, wherever we are. And the religious leaders are just as sick as anyone else. We are just as sick as anyone else, just as broken. Jesus is ready to heal you. If you're ready to admit, your righteousness is as filthy rags as if it's not the righteousness of Jesus. For some of us, the invitation is to, try to, is to stop trying to think we have Jesus all figured out. There are no limits to how great he is. None of us can claim we fully understand him or how he works. Reminds me of what Joseph said to his brothers way back in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We can't have God all figured out about who's right and who's wrong and what we have to. We need to turn to Jesus. Our job is to repent and believe, to trust Jesus, to follow him, to love and accept people as he loves and accepts people because they are image bearers. Loving and accepting people is not approving 
necessarily of everything people do, do, I don't think everybody should approve of everything I do. But I want to be loved and accepted. People want to be loved and accepted. They, Jesus loves and accepts people because they are made in his image. Bring people to Jesus in prayer. Ask Jesus to break your heart for people, no matter where they are. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this morning because of the word of God. But there's always an invitation to respond. So I beg you, ask Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it clear. What's my response this morning? Let's pray together. God, you are so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. Jesus is showing that again and again with his interactions with people, with, with how he loves people. And he doesn't let the religious leaders constrain him and constrict him. He doesn't hate them. He just recognizes that they think they have it all together and they don't. Oh God, help us not to be like that. Help us to be humble. Help us to be willing to admit that we're wrong. Help us to love people like you do, any person, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing, because everyone is made in your image and you love everyone. And you invite everyone, no matter where they've been, what they've done, to follow you, to ask you to forgive and give their life to you. Please just bless us as we open ourselves up to you. Give us the wisdom to know what our response should be and the strength to do it. And thank you that you will walk through every step with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.